welcome to the 44th Womanthology Podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this episode, we will be chatting with Michael Johnston, co-founder of Wading Herons Group, about being a male ally of gender balance and inclusion more widely, and also about the convergence between inclusion and other aspects of the environmental, social and governance agenda. As ever, Inesh Santos will be sharing the details of the new stories in the written issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have Michael Johnston, who is co-founder of Wading Herons Group. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real honour, delight to be here. I think it's been a bit of a while coming, hasn't it? I don't know how long we've known each other now, how many years has it been, but this podcast has been a while in the making. Well, I can't believe you waited this long to ask me, to be honest. But <laughs> I, I think we've known each other about 10 years, haven't we? It's got to be more than that, I think. But welcome anyway. We are on the Men as Allies issue. So I thought, who do I know who's a good ally? it's Michael. So I've got some questions for you and we're going to have a bit of a conversation today and yeah so let's do this. I'm going to start by asking you if you could give us a bit of an overview of your educational background and career to date. Sure well I guess the short summary is that I went to a very unusual school. I don't know if I've ever told you this again, but I went to a school uh, where we meditated in the morning for five minutes before the school started. And that, I think, informs maybe part of where I've got to today. So very much thinking now about how we can be more mindful and connected. So I'll come on to that in a bit. So a bit of a meditation school, then went and studied journalism. So all things history, politics, economics, communication skills, and then realised that rather than going to, to sort of go through the journalism career of starting at the local magazine, local newspaper and reporting about dog, dog stuck up trees, dog stuck up trees, cat stuck, cat stuck up trees. <laughs> dog was up a tree. That would be a really newsworthy story. I wanted to be working on some of the kind of macro issues, things like climate change, things like social inequality and so on. So variously progressed as an ESG analyst in finance. So ESG really before it was a thing. I mean, I sometimes like to claim I invented ESG and that's very much flavour of the month these days. Sorry, yeah, tell, sorry. tell me ESG, sorry. Oh yeah, an, ac- an acronym that not everybody will necessarily understand. It? It's only two minutes in and you're in with the acronyms. Yeah, I live in my ESG bubble sometimes. So ESG stands for Environment, Social and Governance. And it's something that businesses are very much, in fact, all organisations and the public sector are all thinking about a lot at the moment. And then kind of all things better business, future of business, sustainability, responsible business, more recently purpose, which is a thing that everybody's really interested in. And then, yeah, to, to find myself here now having launched my own business about a year ago. Yeah, Wading Herons. Tell us about the Herons. Well, it's a funny old name, isn't it? Initially, we weren't totally sure, but basically my business partner and I, he was a client of mine when I was at EY, my last job. 
he was at JP Morgan, been in finance for a long time. And we both left the corporate world thinking, hang on, if we want to do something that really starts to move the needle here, we got a bit bit frustrated, I guess, between some of the claims and public commitments around creating a better world beyond just making profit. And we felt that actually some of those, unfortunately, were ringing rather hollow. So we thought, what could we do? And we went kayaking a few times because he lives up the River Thames. Um, I visited what's called Murray, by the way. I should actually mention his name. And we kept seeing this heron. And we thought, he's an interesting chap, or maybe she. And uh, so when we were trying to come up with a company name, we just liked the fact that we kept seeing this heron standing very gracefully, very much connected with the world around it represented connection with nature but also that bird's eye view and perspective on things and we were really keen to bring some new perspectives to the world of business. I like that I like that a lot so now there's a collective of herons as well so you've got this group model so what do you call a group of herons? Oh oh you've completely I'll have to come back to you on that the podcast listeners might have to go away and google it because I've completely forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Um but there is a name for a collective of parents. I won't tap away on my computer Googling it. What is it? Anyway, it'll come back to me. A flock. I'm going to say a flock, but I think there might be a, a more specific name. So, yes, you're right. We thought, rather than just have two middle-aged corporate white blokes pretending that we could bring diverse perspectives, we have deliberately brought together a bunch of people that have really inspired us over the years. And these are some people from very much corporate backgrounds we have a lady called Lorna Davis, who is the former CEO and chair of Danone North America. And my old colleagues from EY, a lady called Carrie Lutz, who was head of strategy at EY. So people with that corporate background, but perhaps people who are, I could dare I say, recovering corporates, people who've achieved great success, but then stepped away to try something new. And then deliberately people from all kinds of backgrounds. So we've got people with psychology, psychotherapy backgrounds, people who are trained neuroscientists and healthcare experts and then some really creative people as well so we've got a couple of artists in there people who are experts in social sciences because we just felt that in the business world there was a real absence of well I guess diversity of perspective so we really deliberately wanted to bring that together and how many of them I think there's about 50 in this Wading Herons tribe we're calling it now which is our ecosystem of wisdom community and uh, ideas and expertise so really cool not just the traditional consulting, hire a few people and then just make it up as we go along, but really looking to bring new ideas first and foremost. So with the herons as well, did you say yes. five zero herons? I think there's about 50 of them now, which is pretty cool. The challenge now is to bring enough opportunities and touch enough organisations that we can really try and bring as many of them in as possible. We're not necessarily expecting all of them to be working in a consulting capacity, but just tapping into the expertise. We bring them all together from time to time for gatherings. We were hosting some film screenings in London last week. One of them's a law professor and film director. So just having access to their brains, that hive mind is an incredible honour for us. And then some of us come together from time to time, depending on which organisations need the expertise. And for the context of the listeners, we'd been chatting a lot about the work you were doing, but also in the context of this whole ESG space and the convergence. So from when we used to work together, going back many, many, many years, we were talking more about the environmental side of things. But then there seems to be this convergence of all of these types of issues together. Could you just give us a little bit about that as well? To give a bit of context and how these topics have started to come together more. When I started my career, I was really interested in the climate and environment piece because 
my thinking was that if we don't have a habitable planet, then it's all well that we can have all of the social structures, economic models and so on that we might want. But it's a bit like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. So you've got to focus on the environment. But then having spent a good 15 or so years largely emphasising environment and climate, in recent years at EY, I came to think that actually, well, we haven't solved this yet. Yes, there's a race to announce net zero targets and so on. But the bit that I think has been missing is recognising that the human stuff, so that's the social, the S in ESG, is very much interconnected with the environment bit. And what I mean by that is that if human beings are rushing around either arguing with each other or fundamentally pretty stressed out and disconnected from themselves, then they're going to really struggle to connect to environmental issues and the wider planet around them, wider society. So I know that might sound a little bit out there, but I think it's really well understood now that we have this twin crises, both social health crises, mental health crises, but then also a planet that's increasingly on fire and underwater. So I'm really convinced now that you can't tackle them in isolation. You have to view them as very much the same problem. Yes, absolutely. Can't promise we're going to solve everything, but we'll give it a good go. Never know, we might do. So what do you consider the role of a male ally to be in the context of gender balance, but also in the context of inclusion more broadly? What can you bring to the table as an ally? Well, I think first and foremost, I certainly don't want to be here mansplaining stuff that, frankly, many of my female colleagues, friends, allies have been in many ways just sort of naturally exuding. So qualities like compassion, like a greater connection to empathy, a stronger desire to collaborate. These are often, I guess, described as feminine qualities. And if you look at various opinion polls, survey data and so on, women generally tend to care much more about environmental issues as well. So up until now, it's largely been the case that men have been the ones rushing around fighting each other and chopping down the rainforest. So I certainly don't want to be coming along going, oh, look, as a man, I've suddenly discovered all of these feminine qualities. But as a white male who is very much in a privileged position, having been connected to and continue to be connected to lots of people in influential places, I guess I really see my role is to be, well, that word ally. How can I bring some of the ideas that, as I said, come naturally often or more naturally to women to perhaps some of my male counterparts and say, you know what, let's start to lean into or embrace some of these, what I often describe as more feminine qualities, because actually those are the qualities, things like, as I said, collaboration, empathy, more of a wider care for those around us and the natural world. As men, we need to be bodying these things as well, because otherwise we're not going to get out of some of these problems. I have a little boy as well, and I think, whereas as a 40-year-old white male, there's only so much unlearning one can do. I think it might be even harder if you're a CEO in their late 50s, early 60s, because you've just been through that kind of patriarchal male environment for so long. And in fact, most large organisations often continue to operate and behave in those ways. But for the next generation, my seven-year-old son Milo and, and his peers, perhaps they can just naturally start to, if we encourage them to, embody and bring more of those feminine qualities but do you think sometimes in the corporate environment the whole diversity and inclusion piece it's something that's done to you so it's like right we're going to give you some unconscious bias training and it's something that everybody has it's like a sheep dip experience Mm. isn't it you're going to be sheep dipped with unconscious bias training because I think people can push against that in the corporate world yeah definitely I mean I'd say sheep dip almost well box check 
thing is another commonly used descriptor, I would say, and often very much tokenistic as well. So here's an issue that we like to proclaim loudly on our website and on International Women's Day or whatever, that we're really progressive, but actually, what does it really mean to embody some of these qualities and to really understand, frankly, what the patriarchy is and how it shows up? And the fact that even as we start to get a better gender balance, it's still largely the case, I would say, although this might start to be changing, might start to shift with generational shifts as well. But women are often expected to get on. They have to really start to embody some of those more masculine qualities like being fiercely competitive and so on. So I think we definitely need a much more nuanced and sophisticated approach to this whole agenda. One of my friends is Mary Portis, who is a, I think, fairly well-known campaigner for both gender equality and better business. She wrote a book called Work Like a Woman, and she describes over her career the fact that, yes, she was able to progress to positions of power and leadership, but to do so, she really had to embody many of those masculine qualities. So it was good to have a woman there. I'm sure that brought a degree of balance, but if she'd been able to bring her full self and embody more of those feminine qualities, then I would suggest that the organisation she was part of would have benefited to a much greater extent. I've read that book. It was a very good book was it was yeah she's quite a superstar as Mary we like her and we're going to talk a little bit now about talent so again this crosses over with a lot of the different areas in the ESG space so why is diverse talent the best kind of talent well first and foremost I would personally think that being surrounded by diverse cultures people ideas is rather more interesting and create and frankly fun than if you're just surrounded by people from a very narrow group, narrow views, narrow perspectives, and so on. And so I just think if you, as a human being, we are in much culturally richer, happier, more fun, more interesting environments when we get those diverse perspectives. I'm now an expert in neuroscience, having read a few books and spoken to a few people on it. But my rudimentary understanding is that from a neurological perspective, our brains or neural pathways quite literally light up or switch off when they're exposed to new stimuli, new ideas. So if you want to, as a human being, be more creative and so on, then talking to people that bring different perspectives literally makes our brains light up. And then to take that forward to an organization or a corporation, whatever kind of structure you operate in from a work perspective, then surely if we have those diverse perspectives and people operating to their fuller neurological potential, then they're going to bring better ideas, be more dynamic and so on. And then this bit that is more widely understood, or at least has been talked about for longer perhaps, is the fact that if you want to appeal to a wider customer base, then you're going to understand more of society if you're not just a bunch of white guys talking to each other. I suppose overlaid with that as well, if you've got this diversity of thought in the organisation, but also it's that freedom to express that, isn't it? If you really want to give people the tools to perform at their best, then you also you give them permission to, to be the whole selves at work as well, don't you? That really makes a big difference. Absolutely. Psychological safety. If you can create those safe environments where there isn't the fear of any recrimination or pushback against someone speaking slightly outside of the normal group think then that's where I think you get the happiest and most creative environments places to work and there's the remote working piece as well isn't there 
So obviously during the pandemic, some people, key workers had to go out and be somewhere. But for the people maybe with office type roles, that's opened up a lot of new opportunities because they've realized that actually if it's managed properly, it works quite well, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I guess I'm slightly conscious that many of my clients and much of my working life has been in an office environment. So knowledge economy or global headquarters type parts of businesses rather than people who, who don't have the luxury of working remotely because they have to be somewhere physically depending on the nature of their role but certainly if you are able to work remotely that just opens up opportunities to so many more people I mean it also means that perhaps for people who may previously have found cost of living cost of travel prohibitive now I'd say that most progressive employers will say no matter where you work from and then that way that just really broadens that pool of talent as you said and I think as well if organizations are looking to try and recruit for example more disabled people obviously there's a natural fit there that's going to make a difference I think there's a big geographical Mm. issue as well so if you're looking at the kind of leveling up agenda as well in the UK that's a big thing as well obviously when we worked together a long time ago I would work from Yorkshire based up there but then a lot of things work-wise that would be happening would be in London so obviously London's great but if you're not from London then it can be prohibitive to travel whereas if you can work from wherever it can make a big difference from the geographical point of view or I think as well with the meetings back in the day pre-pandemic you could have Skype meeting but I don't feel like that was ever classed as a proper meeting before if you really wanted to meet with somebody I had to get in my car or get on a train or whatever and go and turn up and meet them face to face whereas now obviously it's a lot more normal to use zoom or teams and it is classed as a proper meeting whereas before I don't think we had that no I think it's seen as a genuine alternative now sometimes if you do happen to be in the same part of the world as someone it's lovely to make that human face-to-face connection but far from necessary and then you save all that time money traveling and a bit more their work-life balance if you're lucky and there's some organizations now that are doing the four-day working weeks as well so same salary same benefits and everything but they're doing everything in four days and I think there's also a government pilot going on at the moment so several organizations are are trying it out as well yeah I love the idea of the four-day week I've been fortunate enough to have progressive employers in the past who've given me that luxury Personally, I think this idea of presenteeism, kind of the old factory line model of checking in and checking out nine to five or whatever it is, much longer than that in most cases, five days out of seven is pretty retrograde, to be honest. Different people have different energy levels throughout the day. Some people are more morning people, some people are more afternoon, evening people. So allowing people to get the work done where they want to in the hours that suit them, whilst recognising that coming together in person from time to time is good for team dynamics and just general human connection. Yeah, that's got to be the way we continue. And the pandemic has just shown that this idea that people can't be trusted or people won't be as productive when they're working from home, well, it just shows that it's complete nonsense, basically. And studies have shown that you're more loyal to your employer. If they give you that flexibility, you'll go the extra mile. You'll put in that extra because you enjoy working there and that's an extra benefit for you. I don't want to say no brainer. But I think the people that are the best managers of working remotely is people who've done it themselves and people who understand that world. Because I think if people are very into presenteeism themselves, they're not going to manage you well. So it's all about managing people in the right way and getting the most out of them and having that trust there as well. And knowing that if somebody might have to log off for a couple of hours because they've got to go to the school run or do whatever. If you're 
able to take time out, then you're probably going to take that time out, but then you're probably going to put that back and some more as well. Well, yeah, just to, I guess, maybe challenge that slightly, although I do agree with you totally. I think even the notion that for a working mother, for example, that just because they might leave an hour or so earlier to go and pick up their child, there has been this expectation that they'll come back online once they've put the kids to bed and had dinner or whatever, and then they're going to just come on and make up those hours into the evening. I'm not even sure that's necessarily the right way of looking at it, because in my experience, working mothers or people who are perhaps more time constrained for whatever reason, they'll just be super effective and productive during those hours that they are there. So maybe it's not necessarily the case that they should feel the need to go and have to log back on again just to make up the hours is giving people whatever tools they need to get the job done in whatever way works work that works somebody's used that phrase before so the final question is going to be what is coming up next for you what are you looking forward to that can be in work that can be out of work that can be whatever you want it to be oh well i don't know if my fiance will listen to this i'll probably I point it so. in her direct well i'll point it in her direction and and if she can find time in her busy working life slash life in general then maybe she'll give it a listen at some point but I will have to say that yeah getting married has got to be something I'm really looking forward to that's happening in Italy in September so that will be very exciting and then on the work front well having launched this business about a year ago things really are starting to move now I think post-pandemic everyone's come out of the blocks looking to rush around and be busy and capitalize on the opportunity that's come from being a bit freer again but there is this looming worry that the economy is starting to move in slightly negative directions or so that's probably an understatement that we've got conflict in between Russia and Ukraine the climate crisis is getting worse so I think we're at a very interesting time when everybody at every juncture in history seems to think that their time is more interesting and more unique than any other but we do have some both social and environmental crises bubbling up and I think this inflection point could go one of two ways and I always like to be positive and optimistic. So rather than thinking of a climate emergency driven mass migration conflict, planet on fire and tech dystopia, which is, <laughs> is one potential future, I like to think that actually this time during the pandemic where people have gone, hang on a minute, there's more that unites us than separates us. We can solve big global problems when we come together and move in a concerted way and maybe we should be living our lives in a way that allows us a bit of better balance and fundamentally to express our humanity so that's what I'm working on in various ways I won't bore you with the specifics but yeah I'm always hopeful and I think that if we come together and embrace some of these positive trends that I think have been accelerated by the pandemic then yeah lots to be excited about. Will you stay in touch with us and can we kind of follow your progress and We'll hopefully speak with you again in the future. Oh, yes, please. I think we have to all stay in touch because, yeah, the more we collaborate and join forces on this stuff, the more likelihood we have of creating that better world that we're all spending a lot of time and effort thinking about and working on. Well, that sounds like a good place to leave it. So I'm going to say thank you so much to Michael and the Herons. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Fiona. Your listeners can Google what a flop of parents has called for this that I haven't remembered. <laughs> Thanks very much. Hello, my name is Inês Santos. I am the Associate Editor of Womanfology and I am here to tell you all about our new issue which showcases male allies of gender balance. 
The stories include Nick Emerson, Deputy Vice President of the Law Society of England and Wales, shares why diverse perspectives are breaking down barriers in the solicitor's profession. He also discusses why talented individuals from diverse backgrounds better represent society and, by extension, their clients, which is vitally important for a profession that is responsible for upholding the rule of law and ensuring access to justice for everyone. Kai Ojo, Managing Director of Planisware UK, discusses the importance of lived experience in business. He shares how lack of diversity at senior executive levels will always be a barrier because it is not possible to fully understand the challenges faced by those within the team you run if you don't have lived experience of what it means to be excluded yourself. Neil Davis is a senior manager at Grant Thornton, UK LLP, based in their Belfast office. He is one of over 300 inclusion allies within Grant Thornton and one of the inaugural members of their inclusion advisory board. As well as being a male ally of gender balance, Neil is an advocate for fellow LGBTQ plus colleagues and all other minority groups. Neil discusses why being inclusive is just the right thing to do and how no one should be excluded or treated as less. Chief Superintendent Paul Fotheringham, President of the Police Superintendents Association, talks about creating flexible workplaces that welcome everyone and puts lived experience at the heart of strategic thinking. Paul shares how difference in all its forms brings value to thinking and to service delivery in policing. Do check out our website, womanphology.co.uk, to read the full stories. And that is all from me. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also follow the show. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. We're taking a short break over the summer, but we'll be back with you in September, so I hope you get to relax and take some time out over the holidays. You can find links to the full back catalogue of Womanthology podcasts through your podcast platform and also on our website, so there's plenty to keep you occupied until we return. Take care in the meantime.